Chris Webster here, co-founder of the APN. I just wanted to thank you for supporting archaeological education and outreach. Please share this post across your socials so more can learn about our shared past. On to the episode. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Dirt Podcast is brought to you with support from the Archaeology Division of the American Anthropological Association. And welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And before we begin, we have another quick shout out to our newest Patreon supporter, Catherine. Thank you so much, Catherine. If you would like us to thank you and to our microphones listeners, you can go to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and help us produce the show for you. Yeah. Ah, we do. We do this for you. And us. We like it, too. And while it may be November in our calendars, listeners, it's still Spooktober in our hearts. And we've got one last order of Eri Orecchietti to serve you. So where are we this week, Amber? Well, Anna, this week, let's go to India. Specifically, Specifically, our story this week takes place in the northern state of Uttarakhand in the Himalayas, which borders Nepal to the east and Tibet to its north. So this is the most north India that you can get. Because if you go any more north... The, the northest. Yeah. Northernmost India. So if you go any more north mm-hmm. in India, you're in another country. In the Himalayas. I, I understand the concept of borders. Thank Just. you. <laughs> <laughs> Often I don't understand these things. I appreciate the <laughs> clarification. Let's keep going. I'm just like, this is the Himalayas. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So the area so of um, so the Himalayas, no Uttarakhand. So Uttarakhand, <laughs> the state, is known for being the location of several Hindu pilgrimage routes, um, and also where the Beatles went in 1968 to like learn yoga and take that turn in their careers. Yeah, that was um, a time. But that was that they where they went, like Maharishi the and all that. Okay. Yeah, cool. the ashram that they went to is in Uttarakhand. Um, but, oh. yeah, apart from the Beatles, um, it's known for having several Hindu pilgrimage routes, including the Nanda Devi Raj Jat Yatra. And so my understanding is that Yatra is the pilgrimage. Like, that's the term for the pilgrimage Okay, itself. that's the word for it. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that one happens every 12 years, most recently in 2014. There was flooding in 2013, oh, okay. so they rescheduled it um and so the next one so if you want to go if you want to see it or participate the next one's going to be in 2026 so it's coming up save the date um so it's conducted in honor of nanda devi and in an article i found promoting culture and tourism in uttarakhand i learned quote Nanda Devi is an avatar of Goddess Parvati, Lord Shiva's wife, revered in Uttarakhand. The Nanda Devi Raj Jat seeks to celebrate Nanda Devi's departure from her maternal home in Nauti village to her husband's home in Homkund. The pilgrimage itself lasts 19 days, covers 280 kilometers, uh, which is 174 miles on foot. That's and very far. That is very far. 
and not in a lot of time. And as if that weren't grueling enough, there's this insane altitude change over the distance from, yeah, I see that. it starts at uh, 1,050 meters and ends at 5,000 meters above sea level. So they are ending it at 16,000 feet. Um, yeah, usually when I go hiking and I'm like, ruling out certain routes i filter out all the ones that have an elevation gain of more than like 1400 feet so yeah (laughs) that makes me look like a real weenie yeah so if you were to um if if you were to not do that if you were to go with like more than 1400 feet um, yeah above where you start so um you would have to go through the process of acclimatization And so Mm -hmm. acclimatizing to heights of 3,000 to 5,000 meters, so that's 10 to 16,000 feet, um, Mm -hmm. is where the majority of people start feeling the effects. So there are some that up to to 3,000, like 20% of people experience altitude sickness. But if you go um, 10 to 16,000 feet, um, you absolutely have to start going more slowly and you need to come Mm -hmm. down to go to sleep like you shouldn't stay there overnight now if you are walking for 19 straight days like you don't have that option so if you ascend rapidly from sea level to 3500 meters that's about eleven thousand feet without acclimatization um 50 of people will become super sick and that's that's not odds i like and and so if you ascend rapidly to five thousand meters um, that's where the, the Yatra ends. Um, right. Yeah. Everyone will experience that. Now, like, I, to be fair, a lot of people, well, many people who are participating in this are from places that have higher elevation. If they're local, if they're from around there, it's easier. But if they are coming to be pilgrims, like if they're doing a pilgrimage from elsewhere, um, they already are uh, susceptible to altitude sickness. And then and mm-hmm. like, and then if they're going to do this over the next 19 days and not come down during the process, um, the folks on the Nanda Devi Raj Jat Yatra are at a significant risk of altitude sickness or AMS acute mountain sickness. <laughs> not like, Oh, Aww. that's a cute mountain. Yeah. Um, but, but the, the folks that participate in it credit their faith in helping them push through to complete the journey. Yeah. May I, may I science for a moment? Sure. Do you, do you know what's actually involved in acclimatizing one's body to, to altitude? No. It's your body producing more red blood cells because those are what brings oxygen from your lungs to the rest of your body that needs to get oxygenated. So as your body realizes that you are breathing in air that, you know, as you ascend in altitude, the air is thinner, there's less oxygen per, like the the volume of oxygen is less in what you're breathing in. And so as a result, your body gradually starts to produce a higher volume of red blood cells so that you can get more of that limited oxygen to places in your body where it needs to go. So that's what's happening. So if you... So if you were to draw my blood and draw blood from one of my colleagues who's arriving here this weekend <laughs> from the Himalayas, uh, would yeah, yeah. would their red blood cell count be 
markedly higher than mine because they are from a place with at a higher altitude. That's my understanding. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That was my that was my science interruption. Please continue. Oh, I love this. Thank you. Back to so we're back to the, the, yatra. To the yatra. Yeah. So there are 19 stops over the 19 days, which makes sense that you would stop 19 times because to go to sleep if mm-hmm. nothing else. But they're not equidistant, so a lot of them are uh-huh. like 10 or 11 kilometers between them, and then towards uh-uh. the end, it's like. You're walking 32 kilometers in a day. You're walking 40 uh-uh. kilometers in a day. And I, uh-uh. I just I'm like, tired. I like, I like the thought of it being because it, it uh, is in commemoration of like her leaving her yeah, family it's a home religious to her. Observance. Well, no, but like uh, yeah. leaving her family home to like, uh, the house yeah, yeah, of yeah. her husband. And she's like, I got to pick it up. <laughs> like, yeah. like, I got to go late. <laughs> it's just like the, like someone standing there tapping their wristwatch, <laughs> yeah. like. Mm. But so nineteen stops, nineteen days. But one of them is where we'll be pausing for the rest of this episode, Rupkund Lake. Mm-hmm. So Rupkund Lake is a very shallow lake, which I was like, oh, okay, shallow lake, yeah, okay. No, it's like two meters deep. <laughs> no diving. It's like yeah, exactly. It's it's like a a pool, a large pool, a large naturally occurring pool. Um, and especially no diving because this glacial lake is frozen, uh, eight to 10 months out of the year. Yeah. And so, but if you go to the summer, if you go there in the summer and it's a really popular trekking area, um, it's in the, uh, Nandi Deva, Nandi Devi, um, national park. Um, so trekking non-religiously. No, no. Yeah. So it's a, so, um, there are. It's a it's a really great trekking route. So there's a route mm, uh, that mm-hmm. goes past it, also like in and out of it's kind of in the I pass. see. Yeah. So okay. Yeah. Um, okay. It's and I I have in the notes here um, the TripAdvisor reviews. <laughs> oh, oh. Where we like should. people go and they're like, I went and I used this like I had this guide and it was amazing and like all this like. Because it's an attraction. It's a point that you ten out of ten would to. go back. Basically. Yeah. That's sort of the the theme. Um but if you so people go in the winter because people um like facing nature and like just trekking out there in the dead of winter. Um and the elements. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you go in the summer, you'll be able to see straight to the bottom of the lake, and there you will find human skeletal remains Anna we are talking about a lake full of bones lake of bones (laughs) how did those bones get there Anna how did they get there how'd those bones get there Anna I imagine we're going to explore this in the upcoming several minutes yeah yeah (laughs) it's a lake full of bones oh is that like did you want no no it's very much like a a rhetorical question like Okay, um, <laughs> I was like, I, I, I could tell you, but no. Like, well, we will tell know. each other. Yeah. So, yeah. the same article that I mentioned above that talks about the Yatra, um, uh-huh. it says of this lake, quote. The Yatra passes through Rupkund, a mystery lake, where you'll see hundreds of skeletons. It is believed that once Casual. a king... <laughs> what? If you look to your right, you'll see hundreds of skeletons. If you look directly behind you, you'll see a dog that's barking. She knows we're talking about bones. 
The author says, quote, The Yatra passes through Rupkund, a mystery lake where you'll see hundreds of skeletons. It is believed that once a king took some dancers for his entertainment to this sacred place, due to which the goddess got angry, which resulted in hailstorm. The people at Rupkund died and the dancers got transformed into stone. The skeletons indicate that the average height of a person at that time was nine feet. Strange, isn't it? End quote. Says the article. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, yes, 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 it is. So, Strange. nine foot tall people aside, um, mm-hmm. the legend provides a very plausible explanation for how a large number of skeletal remains could have ended up at the bottom of a six foot deep lake. Um, mm-hmm. A deadly hailstorm during a raging party. According to the Weather Channel, fatalities from large hail are rare, but they do happen. Um, The NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, um, estimates that around 24 people per year are injured in this way in the U.S. alone, which Mm. doesn't feel that rare to me. Like, that doesn't sound rare. 24 people per... I mean, if you divide it out, I I guess. And and the United States is big. Well, I mean, like, the odds of you dying by a hail... But, I mean, that is... It's not nothing. Yeah, I feel like happening, problem. Mm. Um, So, um, as if this were something that one would want a record for, India currently holds the record for deadliest hailstorm, which happened in April 30th, 1888, and killed 246 people. Which, I mean, that's awful, but also if we're going to consider this as a possibility for the reason why all these people are dead, like the fact that India, where this is, holds the record, like, yeah, okay. Yeah. Plausible. Right. Yeah. So we know there was another time that a few hundred people, there was, yeah, there was a fatal hailstorm that took the lives yeah. of a several hundred people at another point. Yeah. So was it a hailstorm? Crazy. Well, just like when someone's arrested for the second commercial break in an episode of Law and Order, uh, you might dun, guess dun. that hailstorm isn't the culprit. Ahem. In 1942 AD, um, <laughs> a park See. ranger. I know. <laughs> It's funnier if I say AD. Um, In 1942, a park ranger for the Nanda Devi National Park uh, passed by the lake. Um, And this national park is huge. It's like huge. And also a lot of it is the sides of very tall mountains. Uh, So it's like. So you wouldn't see every inch of it every day. You might. This might be the first time in this person's career that he cruised by. (laughs) Like not as though. So um, he passed by the lake, saw some human remains, presumably freaked out, and brought some of them to British authorities. This being Good. 1942 Good. and Good. World War II, and the British being the British, they suspected that the bones must belong to Japanese soldiers that had attempted to sneak into Allied territory and died of exposure. I mean, the paranoia is... Yeah, so that's... so Yeah, sure. <laughs> they dispatched a team to see if that was a... if. If that was the case and whether such an extremely flawed plan to infiltrate enemy territory had happened when the British Let's investiga- go the worst way possible. <laughs> um, when the British investigators arrived at Rupkund and checked it all out, they concluded these bones are old. Yeah, they sure were. So we have a further article from Atlas Obscura from which I will be quoting a quote. It was evident that the bones were quite old indeed. Flesh, hair, and the bones themselves had been preserved by the dry, cold air, but no one could properly determine exactly when they were from. 
More than that, they had no idea what had killed over 200 people in this small valley. Many theories were put forth, including an epidemic, landslide, and ritual suicide. For decades, no one was able to shed any light on the mystery of Skeleton Lake. So, from that point until an expedition in 2004, the reigning theory was maybe hailstorm, but definitely not Japanese soldiers. And there's some interesting forensic anthropology at work here. For one thing, it looks like the skeletons all had the same types of perimortem injuries. So, yeah, so this, is, this is what they like learned in that expedition in 2004. Yes. When they did yeah, like, so this a is, real analysis. This is all evidence from that. Mm-hmm. For one thing, it looks like the skeletons all had the same types of perimortem injuries perimortem injuries. These are injuries that occur at or near the time of death and not after death. You can tell the difference in a couple of ways. One is to look for signs of healing. If a person was injured a couple of weeks before their death, their bones will start to heal and regrow, and you can see that on the skeleton. A dead person can't regrow their bones, so if there's no sign of healing, then the injury either caused the individual's death or happened right around the same time. The other major piece of evidence is the fracture itself. Bone is living tissue. Amber, remember I told you that and it blew your mind, but sure it's still it's still true, at least as long as the person who owns those bones is alive and that living tissue contains collagen. The collagen in the bones affects the way the bones fracture. When living or very, very recently deceased bone breaks, it typically forms a clean spiral fracture called a green break. After an individual has died, depending on the conditions where the body is located, that collagen will gradually degrade and go away. As that happens, the actual structure of the bone changes, and so does the way the bone breaks. If a bone has been around for a while, it won't break in that clean spiral pattern, but instead will snap in a ragged or transverse break. And that to a pathologist, or hi, to a grad student who's doing their dissertation on reindeer bone breakage. Hello, it's me. Hi. Uh, It is very, very recognizable as a post-mortem break. So not only were the injuries of the individuals at Ripkun Lake all perimortem, they all appear to have been inflicted by, by a blunt, rounded object, which didn't jive at all with the weapons of the time, which were spears and other pointy things. So the spears and stuff, they, they were found with some of the bodies. Taking skeletal evidence and the cold environment into consideration, the 2004 research team proposed that the injuries were due to a sudden and severe hailstorm in which people were pelted with large hailstones that were estimated at 23 centimeters or nine inches in diameter. That is really, really big. Yeah. That's like, that's like, my head is kind of like nine inches-ish in diameter. Okay, it's a little smaller than my head. My brain is probably about nine inches in diameter. Anyway, so that that's really scary. Trapped in a that valley with metaphor. no shelter. What was that supposed to do? <laughs> it wasn't a metaphor. I was just trying I'm to like, do a no, size I'm like estimation. Trying to illustrate the, like ah yes. Yeah, so yeah. if I threw Anna's brain at someone, well, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't like hurt a cantaloupe. My brain's it's squishy. like throwing a cantaloupe. Oh, that's much better. It, yeah, if an icy <laughs> cantaloupe Sorry, fell from the sky along with several other icy cantaloupes. Yeah, that's that's terrifying. (laughs) And these people were trapped in a valley with no shelter. There would have been no easy escape, thus resulting in this mysterious mass of skeletons. So with that image, listeners, let's have a quick ad. Need to gain essential business skills to level up in your career? Then UCR University Extension's Professional Certificate in Heritage Business Management is the program for you. Join the first University of California online business program designed by and for cultural heritage professionals. 
Enroll early and save. Visit extension.ucr.edu slash APN today. Hey, fans of archaeology, head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop and click the link to our tea Public store. You'll find some awesome designs that you can pick up on t-shirts, mugs, and more. From our Ask an Archaeologist series to the worst idea the Life in Ruins podcast ever had, slamming agriculture. I mean, seriously. Again, that's www.arcpodnet.com forward slash shop for some archaeo swag. Now we're done with the ads. Yeah, so um, it was also during this um, during this time in around 2004 that the Hyderabad-based Center for Cellular Center for Cellular and Molecular Biology, the CCMB, retrieved 30. I don't know if like the, the individuals or 30 um, units of remains from Rukun for right. DNA testing. And they also did um, radiocarbon. They also did carbon dating on them. And so mm-hmm. the skeletons, which were dated back to sometime around 850 CE, were found to be composed of two different groups of people. One group can, seemed to appear to consist of a family or perhaps tribe of related individuals, while the other was found, were found to be unrelated and measured physically smaller and shorter than the rest of them. Huh. Um, further studies revealed that 70 percent of the group originated from what is today Iran, uh, suggesting that the rest were locals hired to guide this large group of pilgrims through the valley. Um, So Anna mentioned that there were stuff there. So leather shoes, rings, and spears were found in the lake, some of which can still be seen today. Um, Further reinforced the theory that the smaller group was there to lead the rest. Um, And then also um, a lot of soft tissue was preserved. Um, yeah, because of the climate conditions. Yeah, because of the climate conditions, and uh, I'll have notes on I'll have notes on the notes because um, some of <laughs> these on, have some notes. like pretty gnarly images of human remains, and yeah, not we, just like not just bones. Out. Yeah, well, yeah, um, and so it turns out it was a hailstorm. Just like everyone said, perhaps they were it's that, like it's that twist in CSI or SVU where it was like, it was that guy. So perhaps they, they could have they could have even been doing the Nanda Devi Raj Yatra, even considering it mm-hmm. goes by there today. Um, yeah. So in 2007, there went up a cry among local lawmakers and concerned citizens uh, that the skeletons were disappearing uh. from the lake. Um So I'm going to quote the Indian Express here saying, quote, the presence of human and animal skeletons in and around the Rupkund Lake has been a mystery for hundreds of years and a number of folktales in higher Garhwal Himalayan region are weaved around them. But now these skeletons have started disappearing. The dwindling count in the recent past has sent alarm bells ringing in the Chamoli District Administration. D.S. Garbayal. District Magistrate of Chamoli has written to the state government about the threat to these historical skeletons. Officials said curious tourists and trekkers, apart from the researchers who visit the lake in summers, take away a large number of skeletons every year. Who? I will contain. It's like souvenirs. Yeah. Um, I know. I understand that. But 
So in an interview with the Indian Express, Garbyle says, quote, I have written to the state government about the disappearance of skeletons. As the lake is far away at the height of 5,029 meters near Trishul Peak in the east of of the border district of Chamoli and remains frozen for eight months in a year, it's difficult to guard the area. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's chilly. The Chamoli district administration has urged state government to declare the area as a protected um, as protected and undertake a fresh count of the skeletons. Um, the Garvayal also said, quote, earlier there were hundreds of skeletons, but only a few remain. There has to be some check on people coming to the lake during summers. And so it was. The mystery of how the skeletons got there had been solved. And the mystery of where the skeletons were going, unfortunately, was not that much of a mystery after all. Not that much of a mystery at all. But then, twist. Twist indeed. And some uh, great writing courtesy of Rachel Gutman at The Atlantic. Quote, a few years ago. A group of archaeologists suggested, after inspecting the bones and dating the carbon within them, that the dead travelers at Ripken Lake were caught in a lethal hailstorm around the 9th century. An international team of more than two dozen archaeologists, geneticists, and other specialists dated and analyzed the DNA from the bones of 37 individuals found at Ripkind. They were able to suss out new details about these people, but, if anything, their findings make the story of this place even more complex. The team determined that the majority of the deceased indeed died a thousand or so years ago, but not simultaneously. And a few died much more recently, like in the early 1800s. Stranger still, the skeleton's genetic makeup is more typical of Mediterranean heritage than South Asian. So there's a double twist, which I can only assume you put on in, on purpose because DNA is a double helix. No, there's Excellent just two work. twists. Oh, okay. Well, but I just liked the imagery. But authorial intent is only part of the equation. In literary criticism. <laughs> not only are these people not from the same place, they're not even from all from the same incident. And the findings also revealed that the two major genetic groups were actually deposited approximately a thousand years apart. First, during the 7th through 10th centuries CE, individuals with Indian-related ancestry died at Rupkund, possibly during several distinct events. It was not until sometime during the 17th through 20th centuries that the other two groups, likely composed of travelers from the Eastern Mediterranean and Southeast Asia, arrived at Rupkin Lake. Um, the co-author of that research, author Douglas J. Kennett of the University of California at Santa Barbara, says, This finding shows the power of radiocarbon dating, as it had previously been assumed that the skeletons of Rupkin Lake were the result of a single catastrophic event. So back to that article from the Atlantic. Well, before we get back to that article from the Atlantic, yes, um, something to note about the the power of radiocarbon dating it does diminish as one gets closer to the present. And so, having saying that, it's sometime during the seventeenth to twentieth centuries. It's it's less precise. So it is more imprecise right. because we talk, you know, we talk about wiggle matching and those sorts of things where radio, there are points in history where radiocarbon dating is tighter, is is more likely to be accurate than at other points. And so this second group that came later, it's harder to tell when that is. Yeah. So which is uh, exactly the concerns of Kathleen Morrison, the chair of the anthropology department at the University of Pennsylvania. And so she thinks that the least 
interesting thing about the specimens at Rupkund is where in the world their DNA says they came from. She points out that a Hellenic kingdom existed in the Indian subcontinent for about 200 years, beginning in 180 BCE. And she says, quote, the fact that there's some unknown group of Mediterranean European people is not really a big revelation, end quote. She also cautions that, just like Amber said, radiocarbon dating gets less and less accurate the closer specimens get to the present day because of, you know, atomic testing and carbon emissions and fun things like that. So the early 1800 state assigned to the Rupkin specimens with Mediterranean heritage might not be perfectly accurate. Um, but I want to go back to the Hellenic kingdom. That was just sort of an offhanded part of that um, comment by Kathleen Morrison, but I had no idea that there was a Hellenic kingdom in slash on the Indian subcontinent. I, I knew that our favorite overrated conquering wonderkind, Alexander the Great, got sort of there-ish, and then he turned around and then he died. But that's that was the extent of my knowledge, which I think reflects more on me and my limitations. But um, I wanted to give a brief summary of this uh, Greco-Indian or Indo-Greek kingdom, depending on who you want to give top billing. So the Indo-Greek, Greco-Indian kingdom was a Hellenistic kingdom spanning modern day Afghanistan into the classical circumscriptions of the Punjab of the Indian subcontinent, which is today northern Pakistan and northwestern India during the last two centuries BCE. And it was ruled by more than 30 kings who were often in conflict with one another. The kingdom was founded when the Greco-Bactrian king Demetrius, who was not a camel, invaded the subcontinent early in the second century BCE. The Greeks in the Indian subcontinent were eventually divided from the Greco-Bactrians centered in Bactria, which is now the border between Afghanistan and Uzbekistan, and the Indo-Greeks in the present-day northwestern Indian subcontinent. The most famous Indo-Greek ruler was Menander, and I, I thought I'd heard that name before, but Amber says in the comments on our script that I guess I'm thinking of the poet Menander, and I know we've mentioned him, so probably that is what I'm thinking of. Yeah, um, that Menander is more famous than this Menander. Yeah. Oh, well, I tried. The, the expression uh, Indo-Greek kingdom loosely describes a number of various dynastic polities, um, but we don't... Mm. Traditionally associated with a number of regional capitals like Taxila, which is modern Punjab slash Pakistan, uh, Pushkalavati and Sagala. Other potential centers are only hinted at, for instance, by Ptolemy's Geographia and the nomenclature of later kings. During the two centuries of their rule, the Indo-Greek kings combined the Greek and Indian languages and symbols as seen on their coinage, blended Greek and Indian ideas as seen in the archaeological remains, and, and the diffusion of Indo-Greek culture had consequences which are still felt today, particularly through the influence of Greco-Buddhist art. And to me, the art is particularly cool because it really is this visual representation of the melding of two cultures and aesthetics, and probably more than two cultures, really. Um, the clothes are often very Greek-looking. There are amphorae all over the place in reliefs and um, statues, and some of the folks have Greek hairstyles, but then the poses and the gestures and kind of the general like wiggliness, like the... Um, Liveness, like it's very, it, it's very Indian looking. Um, there's a, I, I will put this on social media when this episode goes out. But there's this statue of Heracles strangling the Nemean lion, um, and Heracles doesn't have a head, but the body shape is very Indian in that it's kind of lithe and smooth without a lot of the exaggerated or distinct musculature that you often see in 
Greek depictions of Hercules, Heracles. Uh, the lion also has no head. I suspect art crime. Or just, you know, someone with a, a hammer. Uh, but it's also kind of slinky, but maybe that's more because it's a cat. So I learned a thing, and I wanted to pass it on to oh. our listeners. Yeah. Um, so back to the bones. Um, knowing that some of the bones at Rubkun came from a slightly unusual population still doesn't shake the fundamental mystery. How hundreds of people's remains ended up at one remote mountain lake. Researchers are confident that the skeletons were not moved to the site. Rather, people whose bones ended up there simply lost their way or got stuck near the lake during bad weather. Um, as Harvard geneticist David Reich points out, it's possible that the remains scattered around the area gradually fell into the lake during landslides. So mm -hmm. Kathleen Morrison, whom we quoted above, um, doesn't fully buy this explanation, saying, quote, I suspect that they're aggregated there, that local people put them in the lake. When you see a lot of human skeletons, usually it's a graveyard. Yeah. So it's still a really cool mystery. How'd those bones get there? I don't know. We don't know. So, listeners, we leave you with a mystery, but maybe also slightly more knowledge about a few things, which honestly is a win in our book. Thank you, as always, for listening and for telling folks about us and leaving us such nice reviews. And please continue to do all those things. Yeah, we'll be back in your ears soon with new content. Until then, you can follow us on social media to see all the breaking news from anthropology and archaeology that we post, as well as photos and our pets sometimes mm -hmm. um so uh you can find us on facebook at the dirt podcast on twitter we're at at dirt podcast and on the <laughs> gram we are at at the dirt pod mm -hmm. and all of that lives together at the dirtpod.com and as we set up top you can support us if you like what we do at patreon.com slash the dirt podcast thanks yep. for listening everybody hope everyone had a wonderful spooktober Bye. This show is produced by the Archaeology Podcast Network, Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle in Reno, Nevada at the Reno Collective. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Chris Webster here. Thanks for listening and sharing this episode across your socials. It really helps us get the word out. If you don't know how to share from your podcast app, just look for a share icon on Apple devices. It's usually a box with a little arrow coming out of it, something like that, and share it across your socials right from in the app. If you'd like to support us a little more and get some extras in the process, then head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for some options. That's arcpodnet.com slash members to support archaeological education and outreach.